I was listening to some of the Celestia dev calls over the weekend. Yeah, I don't know why I was doing that over the weekend. <laughs> I guess that's just the the people we are at heart. But the sheer amount of developer mindshare that Celestia is attracting and hopping on one of those calls and just listening it back and, and hearing people from Atom community, Ethereum community, the Celestia native community. Then you got John Adler, who in my opinion is one of the biggest brains in all of crypto. It's hard to ignore the amount of attention that Celestia is getting. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0x10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today, the BlockWorks Research team is back to bring you another analyst roundtable. It's Monday, January 29th, and you have myself, Sam, and Dan. Sam, you want to kick it off with some news and governance updates? Yeah, absolutely. So we see the Uniswap DAO starting to uh, discuss the cross-chain strategy of their uh, DEX a little bit more seriously. They're looking to incentivize key pools with uni incentives from the treasury on key pools such as ETH, USDC, USDC, USDT, and other pools that are pretty much critical for the you know smooth functioning of any ecosystem uh, on any chain. It also mentions existing chain deployments like ZK Sync Era and Scroll, where dominance isn't quite as strong as they probably hope. But it also mentions chains like Monad as uh, high growth targets that the chain can target and essentially continue to capture market share across other chains. So found this pretty interesting and tangentially to that. Uh, it's pretty busy for Uniswap right now. They have another proposal that passed on January 13th. So we actually are a little bit late on this one, but it's a Bitcoin sidechain rootstock that they're looking to deploy on. This proposal is from the Michigan Blockchain Club. So hat tip to those students over there. That's pretty cool to see them getting active in Uniswap governance. I know a lot of blockchain clubs are pretty active in Uniswap already, but still always love to see that. Um, but basically, they are looking to deploy on Rootstock, which is a Bitcoin sidechain that is leveraging something called merged mining. It kind of reminds me of eigenlayer restaking in that Bitcoin miners can run the same, uh, I guess, the, the Rootstock client and redirect some of their hash to secure that sidechain. So I thought that was kind of neat. I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about it, but nevertheless found it kind of interesting with the parallels between it and eigenlayer but that is what's going on in uniswap do you guys have any thoughts i think it's relatively interesting like uniswap has historically not paid like that much attention to like other chains even outside of ethereum i know like in the past half a year or so they started to try out like incentive programs i know Garland has done a bunch of research for them but they haven't really sort of ventured out to smaller L2s or sidechains and, and for good reason, right? I would bet that 90% of users on the sort of the EVM ecosystem are on Ethereum, Arbitrum and Optimism today. So why bother with sort of like the operational cost that it would take to deploy on like a new smaller chain with 1% of the users. But I think they're probably at the point where like we want to build our own brand and our own ecosystem. And we want to become like the de facto decks across the entirety of crypto, right? And there's definitely like a lot of value to building that type of brand. And so, yeah, I think like it's a natural progression for them to start using their incentives and their humongous treasury to start incentivizing some of these deployments on like smaller like chains, but you could see it as sort of like a venture bet, right? Like no one knows how Monad would do, but like if it does well, then Uniswap deployed on Monad will also do insanely well, probably. 
Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen more aggressive pushes like this out of Uniswap, to be honest. But at the end of the day, I guess it's a lot better to do this during a bull market when the token value goes up and the value of incentives. I feel like a broken record. I feel like I come on this show every week and talk about incentive value. But nevertheless, you're you're definitely going to get more bang for your buck as the Uniswap DAO. And on top of that, you know, that front end tax is significant and it drives a lot of value back to the Uniswap Foundation uh, I believe I'm saying that right. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's, or maybe it's Uniswap Labs that collects. Yep, that yeah, it's Labs, not the foundation. Okay. And it is significant. I think yeah, they recently hit over five mil. So it's it's not a small number. And that's probably in two, three months. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, well, you'd think uh, having a larger presence on some of these newer chains or even the ZK EVMs, like it's pretty low hanging fruit for them to to go out and grab. So all for it. I feel like that's kind of the the push and pull between maybe the the longer thought process behind these this incentive program, right? Is you know if we're really getting this world of a million chains, you have to pick your shots as a as a protocol and say where are the users going to be uh, and on which chains, and then those are obviously the or the chains that I want my application to be used on or incentivize use on to kind of make it that core protocol in whatever sector it is. Uh, kind of generalizing this beyond Uniswap, right? Is if you're going to be a cross-chain app, like you need to think carefully about where those incentives flow, because you can imagine a world where you incentivize use on, you know, the 999,000th most used chain, uh, and then you've effectively wasted all of those incentives because there's no users there. Uh, so it's just an, an ongoing problem, I feel like. And I think the the proper approach is wait to see. Uh, I mean, I guess it's kind of a gamble, right? If you if you wait to see too long which chains are, are going to be the chains worth having a, a large protocol on, you know, you might miss the the initial early move, first mover advantage. Um, but yeah, I think you do need to think critically about which chains are getting incentives in, in this new paradigm we're in. At the same time, though, it's like if Uniswap doesn't deploy there, is someone just going to fork their code and deploy it themselves and launch a new token alongside with it? So it's like you might as well just deploy it under the Uniswap brand with minimal incentives. So that way you're like kind of the early mover, you bootstrap the liquidity and that can, as we've seen in the past, kind of develop a mode of sorts, but definitely like seeing Uniswap go in this direction. But Ren, do you want to kick us off for the, uh, the, the next, uh, I guess, news update we got? Yeah, sure. There recently was a temperature check snapshot for Lido DAO to choose a team to develop the wrap stake bridge to BNB. I think two months ago, it was a pretty contentious issue um, when Layer Zero Labs sort of launched their own bridge for Rapstick Thief 2, I think Binance, Avalanche, and Scroll. And they got a decent amount of pushback. And I think this is something that a lot of protocols that are looking to go cross-chain, whether that's for governance or for their assets issued, are sort of like struggling with what is the best bridge architecture. Anyways, um, the snapshot ended five days ago and Wormhole and Axelar won with 81.13% of the vote. Next was Chainlink CCIP with 14.12% and next was Layer Zero with 4.75% of the vote. And to clarify, Wormhole and Axelar is like a joint sort of submission. So this wrap stake deep bridge would be secured by both Wormhole and Axelar. And I think this is a general trend that you're seeing in crypto, right? Rather than just trusting the security assumptions of one bridge, you go, hey, might as well use multiple bridges so that at least there's like a fallback option or sort of like a multi-sig of bridges, right? Um, and Uniswap is exploring a similar thing for their governance. Um, they did a really in-depth sort of bridge assessment report and they evaluated six different bridges for their governance, governance needs. And they also came to the conclusion that multi-message aggregation is probably the best route for them. And I think they are actively 
developing something there. So it's just interesting to see how the bridge security landscape is evolving, given that it's one of the most sort of contentious spaces and sort of hardest to secure to. I'm kind of surprised by the results of this one. I definitely get the having two different parties kind of like winning the vote over two separate proposals, but Chainlink being such an OG, I would have thought that they would have garnered more votes to be completely honest with CCIP. Yeah, I think I feel like CCIP has been relatively lackluster, though. Um, I don't know whether like a potential wormhole airdrop may have factored into people's like voting decisions. But yeah, I feel like CCIP has been pretty lackluster. So I'm not too surprised to see CCIP like pretty down there, to be honest. Was there any discussion around like why BNB was the chain that they're talking about uh, bridging to? Like, you know, I think there's a couple different reasons why that's interesting, but I'm curious if the forum post detailed that. I did not look too much into the forum post, but I mean, like, kind of similar to the Uniswap thing, right? Uh, if you were Lido, I would assume that you just want like wrap stake deep or stake deep bridge to like all of these random chains so that like, if there's a chance that chain takes off, you become like the de facto LST on that chain versus someone else. Yeah. And I mean, in all, all of the BNB has all of the top line traditional, like, you know, arguably questionable user metrics. They have great, high, you know, they have high transactions, a lot of active addresses, high TVL, high DEX volume. Um, so ultimately like, yeah, that makes sense to probably get your asset over there. Whether or not you think it's like a long-term viable chain doesn't harm in bridging over there. Yeah, definitely agree with that. But Dan, I know you've got uh, some cool updates on our Celestia dashboard. So let me add that to the screen if you want to go over that for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the modular thesis has been front and center for quite some time now. Um, and we have seen the a recent rise in some of those rollups actually getting pushed live. So rollups as a service or RAS as it's being dubbed. Uh, you know, we it's earlier this year, we, we actually have an interview with Neil uh, from when he was Eclipse was still looking to be like that RAS provider. Um, and it's really cool to see that actually come to, to hit production and rollups actually being launched to these providers uh, and these providers doing their part in in managing the chains for their users. I think it's, you know, there's questions around the economies of those or the economics of those businesses, but uh, it's cool to see it live and in production. And so we have two main providers posting or creating and launching rollups that use Celestia DA. Caldera, uh, which launched Manta Network, and Conduit, which has launched a series. I think they're up to five now. Uh, we have all five of those tags. So if I filter this table here just for the word rollup, uh, we'll see that there are six rollups now live using Celestia. Six, six launched, known, and tagged rollups. Of course, uh, there's a series more, right? Like you'll see the the actual namespace that gets used is a hex encoded string. Uh, the reasoning for that is you don't want collisions in the naming conventions you're using. You Ideally, you'd build a system that uh, always has unique naming conventions. So what Celestia has done actually is they're using the first 15 digits of a SHA-256 hash. Uh, so the actual name of the network is uh, you know, a, key, a standard naming convention that actually details out that, oh, this is orderly network. Uh, but then you put it through a hash uh, hash algorithm to actually get uh, the namespace that you're going to use, again, to avoid collisions of, of, of namespaces. Um, the pain in the ass part of that is you can't 
hashes are you know by nature one way so if you if you just see this string of hex coded numbers you know it doesn't get you anywhere and you don't know what the rollup actually is so there is a very manual process in actually getting these names uh, but we do all that hard work for you so as a blocker treacher user uh, you are able to access this dashboard without the headaches that our team goes through on your behalf um it's cool to see the progression here in Celestia actually getting used. So this top left chart here for the viewers is data posted uh, in terms of megabytes of data by namespace. So again, we're still seeing not a ton of usage. There's, there's no way to go around that. For context, Ethereum gets about 700 or so megabytes of data posted to it per day with Arbitrum and ZK Sync kind of leading the data, leading the way, uh, uh, leading the pack on the amount of data posted. But nonetheless, we are seeing uh, this list populate from really just like inscription services that are more of like proof of concept kind of gimmicky uh, protocols to something uh, that the long term vision actually facilitates, right, which is rollups. Uh, and so it's very cool to see that come to life. Uh, Orderly Network and Manta are posting the most data of these rollups, but we have the options networks in Lyra and Avo, uh, you know, live and active. And I think it's something like 85% of uh, DeFi options volume is now uh, running on Celestia underneath, as they like to say. Of course, the other side of this is, you know, the fees paid are incredibly minimal. And if you'd run the math out, uh, ran our annualizer over here, uh, as, as, as he loves to do, uh, if you run the math out, like even at max capacity. So Celestia has eight megabyte blocks that run every 15 seconds. Uh, so if you max those out for the entire year at the current tier price, you're making around four or $5 million of fees. So, you know, the fee revenue isn't that great, even at max capacity today. Of course, that's not your end state max capacity. I think they want to work towards something closer to 100 megabyte blocks. So about 12 and a half times more capacity. And, you know, that's about 60 million or so uh, in annual annual fee revenue. And, our, you know, you go again, like that's still not a huge number when you're starting to look at the, I think we're at like a 17 or $18 billion valuation, uh, fully diluted. That math just doesn't, that math doesn't math. And that takes you to the second point, I guess, which is the modular money idea, right? The idea that the rollups on top of Celestia are, are going to create demand for the token itself. Um, I don't think you've seen that yet. I don't believe any of the rollups that are live today are using Tia as a gas token, um, but they don't necessarily need to use it as a gas token. I don't think if you had meaningful activity that sucked Tia liquidity onto that chain and again, created demand for the asset uh, as a form of money or the modular money vision, that would be sufficient. I think, I think that's totally realistic to say that there can be modular, the modular money idea uh, can definitely increase the value beyond just the the raw fees that get generated by the chain. I think there's a bit of a circular error there because does it become less desirable money if there's no fees being generated? I kind of want to say yes. Um, jury is still out on that. I think today on this initial onset, everybody's just, you know, the, the numbers don't matter today. And that's very fair. Then the chain's three months old. Nobody takes the revenue numbers of a three-month-old startup and uses that as like their investment thesis. Um, I think what you'll probably end up seeing is something along the lines of vertical integration or service offering expansion. Um, you know, they'll do something as I think they're going to have to cannibalize some of their settlement layers that they're like, you know, I, like DA and settlement go hand in hand. So right now they're using like dimensions, basically this settlement like layer uh, that is using Celestia for DA. I kind of think they'll have to cannibalize that at one point and get Tia exported more easily to these rollups uh, if they really want the, the demand to be driven 
two these roll-ups for to you. Um, so I don't know. The jury is really still out. I am obviously a data fanatic, so I think the modular vision is very broken in a lot of ways when you start thinking about the data aspect. But I guess I'll pause there on my ramble, and I'm curious what you guys think about uh, all of that. I guess we had one other, um, I guess, news update is that literally 30 minutes ago before we started recording, StarkNet announced that they are working on building a blob stream implementation in Cairo. So that way StarkNet L3s can leverage Celestia for DA. And I imagine they will open up the door for other DA layers like EigenDA, Avail, et cetera, in the future. So that's something... Again, like every single chain and ecosystem L2 in Ethereum world is building out a modular strategy, it feels like. And I think that's too big to be ignored, to be quite honest. And I was listening to some of the Celestia dev calls over the weekend. Yeah, I don't know why I was doing that over the weekend. <laughs> I guess that's just the the people we are at heart. But nevertheless, like something that makes me really bullish on Celestia, like I get all the fundamental value, cruel naysayerness, I guess, but... I, the, the sheer amount of developer mindshare that Celestia is attracting and hopping on one of those calls and just listening it back and, and hearing people from Atom community, Ethereum community, the Celestia native community. Then you got John Adler, who, in my opinion, is one of the biggest brains in all of crypto. He pretty much helped spin up optimism and the idea of optimistic rollups as a whole. Like It's hard to ignore the amount of attention that Celestia is getting. And I'm also seeing more along the lines of like Celestia and Ethereum genuinely aren't competing against each other. And that's a, a view I've held for quite some time. And maybe I'm getting that wrong. Maybe they complement each other really well. And because Ethereum is so bottlenecked at the DA capacity aspect of things that there is room for both of these things to, to live and enjoy, I guess, the benefits of each other. And, you know, growing the sum of all the parts is more important than, um, a competition in a zero-sum game, I guess. And maybe that's too theoretical for a Monday morning, but <laughs> nevertheless, I find it cool. I want to say that Celestia has definitely like capitalized on its first mover advantage like really strongly. Sure, there are like other DA options out there that are alive today, but Celestia has done such a good job, right? It kind of resembles like there was like a one or two month period like half a year ago where every other day you would see like this chain is going to be launching as an op stack roll up it has similar vibes to celestia right now and you know every project's feeling like going modular i think just last week as uh, dad mentioned just now there was like avo there's lyra there's orderly there's plume and it feels like that trend is just going to continue to be honest and sure eigen da is like probably the other larger competitor but it's not live yet right um and eigenlayer has a proposed 15 mb blocks i think versus celestia's 6 mb per second blocks and at that point you know like the cost differential compared to using ethereum as a da layer is like 99.7 percent versus 99.9 percent .9%. like it's very marginal and i'm slightly worried for eigen da about that to be honest i mean sure you can make the argument that Switching costs is like probably zero. Most of all of as a service providers will integrate EigenDA into their platform so that you just have to like click a button and you're able to switch from Celestia to EigenDA or Ethereum to EigenDA. But say that comes out like Q4 2024, right? By then, probably half the cycle is over. Half the protocols that want to like deploy as a rollup for like a rollup bid will have done so already and all of them are just going to use Celestia over Ethereum and I think it's hard 
to overcome that, to be honest. Just that developer mindshare and as Sam mentioned, right, Starkness is building out like a Celestia Blobstream uh, contract. I don't know whether a similar mechanism is necessary for EigenDA, whether they need sort of like a Blobstream bridge, but there is certainly sort of like a developer ecosystem that's also steadily growing for Celestia. Yeah, that's those are really good points. Sam, you first mentioned the the developer community that coalesces around an idea, a concept, or a chain. I think that is a very understated uh, point of value for a chain. Like if you look at Solana right now, you have multiple teams working to rebuild and revamp the scheduler. You have jump teams coming in and building Fire Dancer, building a new client. You have you know Eugene Chen who's building a, a protocol. Ellipsis is the devco behind Phoenix, um, and he's very involved in like saying, "Hey, here's the problems we're facing as a protocol, and here's how changing the base layer would help not only us but other protocols." And you have this community of developers that are actually like solving the problems that you hit, um, because even if you're a Gen two, Gen three blockchain, you're going to hit problems, and you need those developers to coalesce and kind of fix these things and help improve uh, the onboarding experience and all of these all of these things, and so. So that is remarkably invaluable. And I do think Celestia is dominating at that right now, which is a very, very uh, promising thing to see for the chain. Ren, one of the interesting things you brought up was the the switching costs are zero. And I, I do think that's true. Like if you play out the idea of a million blockchains, then roll up as a service providers are critical in the infrastructure of that. Like that's it's probably not going to happen without them. If your roll-up as a service provider has an integration for EigenDA, Near DA, um, Avail DA, and Celestia DA, and Ethereum DA, if you want to switch, like it is literally a message in a Telegram chat. That is it. That's the switching cost. And there's got to be a reason other than cost. I feel like because you're right. If it's you know if I'm spending a hundred dollars a year or ninety eight dollars a year, then that. The $2 isn't even worth the time it takes me to go type that Telegram chat. Um, so it, it, I think it will come down to like branding and as much as like the alignment stuff is so dumb, it does a, it's not about aligning to the protocol. There's a lot of games to be played with aligning to a specific narrative. And uh, if, you're, if you're somebody who needs to care about the token price uh, for whatever reason, that's something you're going to have to care about and factor into your decision making is aligning to the narrative. Like we see that every day in this industry. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is pretty interesting. And the last piece here is you mentioned growth. So uh, I want to just highlight here that you know we do see a lot of potential growth coming online. So I, I mentioned that this is, this this namespace structure is like what you're supposed to do as a Celestia uh, dev, uh, roll up, right? You can use plain text strings that makes them much easier to see and interact with, uh, but they recommend using this SHA-256 encoding mechanism. And so that's how you see these Lyra, you know, AVO, public goods, like these are the role as a service providers doing, you know, what Celestia is asking you to do. Uh, again, this is permissionless. You can just, you know, name your namespace, my name, uh, and, and it'll work. But this is, so to me, when I see the technical method being taken, this is not some, you know, BS inscription uh, chain that's coming live and being like these, this is rollups testing launch. That is exactly what this is in my opinion. Um, and so there's about 16, 17, 18 chains that we have untagged that have, you know, only posted a few, basically like a day's worth of transactions. I'm, I'm pretty positive that this is an indication that we have an, another batch of upwards of 20 rollups coming online. So this, this trend is very much so only getting started and the growth that Celestia has lined up for like the, 
honestly just Q1 alone is, is going to blow some people away, I think. Um, and again, like I don't love the modular vision, but that doesn't change the fact that I, I can look at this and say, yeah, it doesn't matter if I like it or not, it's coming. Yeah. And like you said, it's just a, like a telegram chat. It's like, Hey, like, I think we're going to make a migration. Can you help us make that happen? And boom, you know, you can make that switch pretty easily. But I think another underrated aspect is uh, there's not a lot of tooling probably built out for a lot of this stuff. Like Celestia is definitely getting the upper hand there in that there's projects who have done the move before run into certain problems, can send a telegram chat to, you know, other developers that they know in the industry. Cause let's be honest, it's not that big and boom, that's a problem they ran into previously and they made this little fix and they can pass that on to someone else. So I think the network effects are, are pretty dramatic. I was talking with Nick white over telegram who works over at Celestia. And I was asking, you know, if you can't quantify the number of light nodes in order to signal a safe increase in block size, the increased DA throughput, like, what are you going to do? And he basically came back with that's actually not as much of a concern. The bigger concern is the block building process for validators. And that's like something I had not considered. So I'm very interested to see how that plays out. Cause that's ultimately a problem that pretty much every chain faces is, is how do you sufficiently decentralize the block building process? And if you have these giant blocks that Celestia is going for, that's definitely going to, in theory, in my, at least how it makes sense to me is increase the validator requirements. So it's going to be interesting to see how Celestia actually scales once it hits that maximum bound of DA throughput, assuming we get 500x the current activity. Okay, I was <laughs> going to say that's still like, even with, you know, another 20 rolls coming online, I don't think we're going to be ballpark close like uh i recently wrote a, a report that touches on this and at the time of writing it was before this recent batch of conduit roll-ups went live uh, and shout out to the conduit team i think they're absolutely crushing they're doing things right uh their roll-ups are paying cheap fees relative to some of the other providers out there um they're crushing and uh at the time i wrote that report sorry for the tangent there there was like 0.1 percent of celestia's capacity being used and you know when they hit 100 percent I think there will be a very strong reason to just simply expand the capacity. It's in like an arbitrary block size bound um, that has to do with the light nodes and the other things you mentioned, Sam, and the amount of information that needs to be gossiped across the, the Cosmos SDK. Um, but there will be growth, but we're still so far away from that number. Like I can't even like visual, like uh, it's hard to even reason about how we hit that. I think there was, the number was like something like 4,000 Arbitrum sized rollups. That's an insane number. Yeah, that's that's truly mind boggling, to be completely honest. When you put it in that perspective, it definitely seems like a problem that's not going to be a problem for a substantial amount of time. But what is keeping someone and maybe you guys don't know the answer to this question, but what's keeping someone from attacking a chain by posting blobs to a specific namespace like that would essentially be their target attack? Like, like if you were trying to like alter the DA on, within a namespace? Not even altered, just like spamming Celestia under a specific namespace Merkle tree. Oh, well, you could, I mean, you could do that, right? But it costs money. And even though it's so cheap, it, it still costs money. But I guess if you just slapped in like an eight megabyte, or, you know, you try to basically fill the block um, with spam is what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, the barrier would be just paying the fees, really. That's interesting. I wonder if we'll see that play out at some point in the future. I also think that if like the actual rollup was posting data to its namespace and someone else was posting data to the same namespace in the same block, my guess would be that like Celestia is storing like 
both versions of the DA for that block, but that's just a guess. Like, you wouldn't just, like, try to overwrite one with the other. I think Sam's just saying, like, what if I just spam the network with a ton of data um, and just to fill the block so other people had to pay more? Is that right, Sam? Yeah, exactly that. And I mean, that'd be a worthless attack at the end of the day. Like, why would you want to do that? But we also see a lot of worthless things go on all the time everywhere in crypto. So I could definitely see it happening. Yeah. And Ren, on your point, like you could just filter the for the information posted to a namespace by a particular signer. So like the, the yeah. actual Celestia address and that would solve that problem. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay. Well, we have... Uh, Talked about Celestia a lot, so let's move on from that one. I've got two token unlocks on the news and, and governance updates get, uh, segment here. So we've got OP unlocks on January 30th, equivalent to 2.5% of the circulating supply, worth about $70 million, And DYDX unlocks on February 1st, worth $87 million, which is equivalent to about 10% of the circulating supply. So these are still some of the supply overhangs everyone was super worried about with the DYDX unlocks. They're continually coming along, but we honestly have not seen that make a material impact in the DYDX or OP prices for that matter. So bullish unlocks, maybe time will tell. Um, we also have Picasso protocol on Solana who launched um, Soul restaking similar to Eigenlayer, uh, launched on January 28th, so Sunday, yesterday. I don't have much of a take here. This feels a little bit weird. I tried to find their Twitter handle, Picasso Network, and it seems like they were like a Cosmos project or I stumbled on like the, the wrong Twitter handle. I don't really know, but it just seems like there's a lot going on with Picasso. I don't know if either of you guys have looked into this much, but any details would be highly appreciated if you have any insight. There used to be a uh, parachain with... Oh my god, I'm blanking. Uh, with Polkadot. Um, and I think that was, oh my god, like probably two years ago. And it seems like they pivoted to this restaking. I don't have strong thoughts on Picasso itself, but I think like this cycle, like there's just going to be restaking for everything, right? There's going to be restaking for obviously Ethereum, restaking for Solana, and you're seeing restaking for Bitcoin payout like pretty heavily. There's like, a lot of projects that are exploring, or I guess not restaking, just staking Bitcoin uh for yield um and yeah yield generation has always been like very attractive in crypto and now you bring that to like this asset that has a spot bitcoin a spot etf i think it's just a natural progression of the space to be honest i mean like you could even say like polygons like pol token with its whole like sort of like infinite utility or whatever they termed it is a form of restaking yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I find it hard to believe that soul restaked will get much traction considering the lack of traction that even just plain liquid soul staked has gotten. So kind of a non-starter for me. Plus, it just feels like copy pasta and a last ditch effort, to be completely honest, from Picasso, which is terrible to say. So sorry to Picasso supporters out there, but that's just my honest opinion on it. <laughs> yeah, Um. Just one last note on Picasso. I do like the gamification element that they're doing. They have this like NFT collection and you can act as like a vault manager and there's only a hundred NFTs and you're basically trying to get as many so or as much so deposited into your vault as possible. And it's just like fun to see people like gamifying such experiences. And I think that's a trend that has already played out and will continue to play out. But for the last news update of the week, we have Uma and its new product, Oval. 
So it's basically an Oracle update auction. Um, it captures MEV that is a result of chaining price updates and is built on top of Flashbot's MEV share backrun auction mechanism. Uh, MEV is obviously very widely studied, but I think Oracle extractable value, not so much, but you can think of a perp dex whenever it updates its prices for traders to trade off, or for example, as the index price for liquidations, there's probably a lot of money to be made given the growth of prop dexes in the past year. And so just a quick rundown of the mechanism. At any point, anyone can place a bid to use the most recent price, most likely a searcher. And these bids or bundles are submitted to one or more oval nodes by searchers, which then act as proto MEV share nodes. And then when these nodes receive the bundles, it places the unlocked transaction ahead of it, adds instructions for how to split the payment, and forwards the unlocked bundle to MEV share. That's a lot of fancy words, but it doesn't matter. It basically just means that you can pay for the right to be the one to update the transaction and you can include your own transactions after that as a bundle. So if you're a liquidator and you don't want anyone else liquidating, you would pay to be the one to uh, basically update the price feed through Chainlink. And you also include your liquidation transactions as part of like an atomic bundle. And it's kind of like similar to when you are submitting a transaction through MEV share and you run an auction, someone back runs you and you get a bit of money. But in this case, it's likely that these protocols, mainly Perpdexes, would receive that Oracle extractable value captured back. Yeah, Ren, that sounds pretty cool. I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about it, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But uh, we will head over to a quick word from Noble, thanks to our fantastic sponsor, DYDX, and then we'll get right over to Hot Seat Cool Throne. This week, we have our five-minute segment with Yelena, a founder of Noble, thanks to DYDX. So thank you so much for coming on, Yelena. For starters, would you mind giving us a quick intro onto what Noble is and why we need a general asset issu issuance chain? Definitely. Thank you for having me. So Noble is a Cosmos chain um, purpose-built for one specific use case. So that's native asset issuance. So when uh, asset issuers like Circle uh, or others sort of consider how to uh, natively issue in other ecosystems, it's relatively straightforward. Uh, you deploy a smart contract, you mint, you burn with those native capabilities. In Cosmos, it's uh, a lot more uh, kind of complicated and difficult. Um, as, as you all know, uh, each Cosmos chain is kind of sovereign from the next. There is no one sort of base layer, one kind of monolithic kind of uh, blockchain environment. And so uh, Noble was really designed uh, and kind of uh, conceptualized to be that uh, asset issuance platform for the entire IBC ecosystem. So you can mint, you can burn, you can redeem, you can issue uh, something like a USDC on, on Noble. And you could have that be interoperable with uh, every other Cosmos chain, you know, such as DYDX in a, in a permissionless kind of fashion. So we are very proud to uh, be bringing native USDC to Cosmos in the last uh, four months. We've since we went live, we've uh, issued about $100 million of uh, native USDC. DYDX is obviously a huge uh, kind of component of that demand and that growth. Um, and um, in the last 30 days, we've done about $350 million dollars of USCC uh, transfer volume. So that's USCC kind of being minted on Noble, IBC'd out to DYDX, Osmosis, Stargaze, if you want to buy a bad kid, um, and uh, kind of many other chains like Kujira and, uh, and so on. So uh, that's Noble in a nutshell. Awesome. Thanks for that quick, uh, quick update and getting the audience up to speed. In terms of CCTP versus IBC, do you expect the primary route in the Cosmos ecosystem to remain IBC or do you think CCTP will become that over time? So CCTP is a really interesting kind of uh, protocol that 
does differ uh, from IBC in, in kind of significant ways. So CCTP uh, stands for the cross-chain transfer protocol. Uh, you could think of it as a kind of circle bridge. So it's a mechanism for me as a user to um, transfer kind of my kind of USCC natively on-chain from any CCTP uh, kind of uh, enabled uh, or CCP supported chain, such as Ethereum, Arbitrum, Polygon, Optimism, Base um, for now and have that USCC go to uh, be minted on, on Noble. So again, I have, let's say in the DYDX example, a bunch of USDC on V3. I want to take that to uh, V4, which is a Cosmos chain. I would uh, kind of initiate a burn transaction, um, which would uh, call in the CCTP protocol that would uh, send an attestation request from Circle to say that the user who is kind of burning their USDC on, on V3 is uh, legitimate. And then that would uh, send a request for mint on the on the noble side, and then you would IBC that out to DYDX. The user doesn't see all of these kind of steps on the back end, including the kind of request for burn, the attestation, the mint, the IBC. All they see is a one-click transaction where their USDC is now um, uh, being uh, migrated from V3 to V4, uh, kind of in the Cosmos ecosystem. So. I look at CCTP and IBC as very compatible from uh, like kind of a use case perspective, because if I'm coming outside of the Cosmos ecosystem, I will want to use CCTP. But then when I'm in the Cosmos ecosystem, I'll want to use uh, IBC. So these are just different uh, kind of messaging protocols uh, to enable the same use case, which is this cross-chain um, kind of activity. So one of the traditional headaches of interacting with the Cosmos ecosystem is the multitude of gas tokens that you need to obtain to use every single chain, right? And with USDC issued from Noble, it seems like there is an opportunity for USDC to be this like generic gas token, kind of similar to how some Ethereum L2s are thinking about like gas abstraction and counter abstraction and having paymasters. So I guess the question here is, what do you think of USDC as a gas token? And do you think that will become commonplace for Cosmos chains? I mean, it's definitely uh, a lot easier uh, to kind of obtain USDC if you want to sort of uh, use it as, as, as a fee token, as a gas token, right? Um, there's so many integrations, you know, with kind of centralized exchanges on and off ramps. It's a lot easier to manage from like a obviously like a price perspective, uh, you're not using a token that's like, you know, very volatile or, or something like this. Um, and so I definitely see that becoming more and more of a trend in Cosmos. Um, what a lot of Ethereum folks don't know is uh, we've actually had this like idea of like chain abstraction or like gas abstraction for forever. Um, so you can use any IBC token as your gas on any Cosmos chain. So technically we could use the DYDX token as our gas token on Noble. I don't think we would want to, um, but we could. Uh, and so that uh, also enables any Cosmos chain like DYDX or Stargaze or Cosmosis to, uh, if they want, uh, use USDC as their native gas token, which of course originated from Noble. Um, so it's really um, a choose your own kind of adventure, so to speak, from like a you know fee kind of gas management perspective. Um, but yes, this idea of gas abstraction is, is super important. Um, I've run into many, many headaches of not having enough, um, you know, gas for certain transactions on other chains, um, having to top up and so on. So I definitely see USDC becoming kind of that um, kind of gas token. Yeah, for sure. As always, Cosmos is pretty early with the tech, at least much <laughs> earlier than Ethereum. 
Well, Yelena, that's about all we have time for today. I think that was really great. I think it gave the audience a lot of insight into what Novo is and sort of the role it plays within the Cosmos ecosystem. For those that want to find out more about Novo or want to just hit you up, where can they do so? Absolutely. Uh, definitely Twitter. Um, I'm or X, sorry. I'm a very uh, <laughs> active there. Um, and please do kind of keep in touch. Um, we have a Telegram channel that where we kind of share like announcements and kind of information. Um, so uh, you can definitely check our Noble Announcements channel. And then uh, we will be um, uh, updating our website and pushing that out, uh, a totally new revamped website in the next couple of weeks. So make sure to check out nobleassets.xyz. Um, and thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks for coming on. Now moving on to our Hot Seat Cool Throne segment. All right, we are back with some Hot Seat Cool Throne. Ren, the annualizer. I actually just noticed that you put that in your name for this episode. That is freaking awesome. So how about I kick it over to you to start us off this week? All right. This week, the largest event of the week is probably Jupiter and its airdrop happening on 31st of January, actually, which is a slight problem given that this podcast will also come out on 31st of January. But anyway, our good friend at Dune, Andrew Hong, made some insane dashboards for Jupiter for you to analyze the data. I'll give you a quick rundown. Um, there's 1.5 billion dollars. These are weekly stats. Um, for like the past week, Jupiter has seen 1.5 billion dollars in perps volume and bought in 2.2 million dollars in fees. Its swaps have seen 3.3 billion in volume and bought in 1 million dollars in fees. Its limit order functionality has seen 81 million in volume and brought in 31k in fees and its dca swaps have seen 56 million in volume and brought in 86k in fees so if you add that together that's roughly 3.3 million a week and of course i'm going to analyze this so that equates to 172.5 million a year and then the next step of analyzing any fee generated is slapping a nice pe multiple on it so in this case i mean I don't really want to be conservative given that it's like Solana. Everyone's really excited about Solana. Jupiter is just like really crazy front end aggregator. And so I think I'm going to go with something conservative for crypto at a 50 PE. <laughs> and that gets us to a $8.62 billion valuation. I'm not sure what is trading on AVO right now, but I think this could be really updated to be outdated to be honest. But I think it was around a $4 billion valuation. So like, but I don't think anyone's going to care about everything I just say. They're just going to see like, oh my God, Jupiter's making like $3 million in fees. That could be so much. Um, and I wouldn't be too surprised to see Jupiter release more products with sort of like the stickiness of the users over time that generate more fees, right? I mean, like the Perps is a relatively new product that they only released two months ago. And it basically generates like more than 60% of their fees in comparison to solves, different orders, and DCA solves. And... I think you're gonna just gonna see that trend continue. I I do think that there are some problems with their perps product. I haven't verified it myself. I think like the Oracle updates are slow, or something, or they're using some jank Oracle. But I don't think anyone's gonna care about that, to be honest. But TLDR, Jupiter makes a lot of money. There is kind of like a fundamental thesis for like a slightly ridiculous valuation. I don't know how much of that fee goes to the DAO or whether it goes to the DAO or not, but it definitely makes money. Yeah, none of the revenue flows back to the DAO or the token, but that was an intentional decision for the near term. I am personally incredibly bullish on that decision. 
reinvesting growth. This is the most high growth industry that exists on this planet Earth and not reinvesting in future growth is a death sentence, in my opinion. Um, I love the idea of tokens being a very interesting way to pass revenue back to users or profits back to users, but that's not how you start as a startup. Like you have to, that's, that is an end state you need to build towards, uh, not an initial launching off point. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think it's a phenomenal product as well, which is the one piece that's like, yes, it's making a ton of money, which is obviously uh, awesome. But one of the few apps in crypto where you use it and you're like, damn, like that felt good. I'm, I was happy with that experience. Yeah, big agree on that. And I love how they're going for <clears throat> perps aggregation as well. I assume that's not against their own base of liquidity. Like I'm almost positive. So correct me if I'm wrong there. And I assume they're aggregating from different perps venues in the Solana ecosystem. But I just find the whole dichotomy of the front end of Jupiter as an aggregator becoming the dominant one-stop shop for user activity in the Solana ecosystem to be super interesting in contrast to Ethereum having like you know, really siloed liquidity and front ends across all these different decks, across all these L2s, across all these different perps uh, venues. Like, I think it's really cool to have one front end to aggregate all that because ultimately it lets the entire ecosystem grow more instead of it being more of a doggy dog world. So Jupiter's per product is actually their own liquidity. They're not um, routing it to like various prep dexes on Solana. I think they started off with caps at 20 million worth of liquidity, but today it's reached, I think 86 million is the last number I saw in AUM. And it's like kind of similar to a GLP construct. It's 50% USDC. It's a basket of USDC, Bitcoin, Solana, and maybe ETH. Uh, but it's seen like relatively impressive volume so far, right? I think it just reached like 87 million AUM. But it's seen $7.3 billion in volume so far. And it's currently $47 million in open interest from 11,000 wallets. So it's definitely like a very widely used product. And if you look across like most of the stats, like December was a huge month for Jupiter. Got it. Okay. Well, I stand corrected then. But nevertheless, Perps is a cash cow. So I have no doubt that that is a place people will trade if they can sufficiently build that out and get some deep liquidity. Because let's be honest here, like the, the perps landscape on Solana definitely is in the very, very early innings when compared to any other, uh, you know, mature DeFi ecosystem like Arbitrum. I think that's also an interesting dynamic of Solana. You know, like the whole like OG thesis of Solana was that you could build like NASDAQ on the blockchain. These limit order books should have taken off. But it seems like most people still prefer these like sort of more crypto native products rather than like limit order books such as like Drift and Zeta. I need to go check the numbers, but I wouldn't be too surprised to see Jupiter doing like a sizable amount of volume relative to Drift and Zeta, even though they have like completely different mechanisms. One is like a limit order book, one is sort of like your standard crypto prep decks. Um, obviously, like for soul markets, I think limit order books are doing more volume. Um, but yeah, I just checked the AVO to it. This thing's trading at 0 0.6788, which I would guess is a $6.8 billion valuation. So, you know, it's not that far off my annualized number of $8.62 billion. Um, I think the, the other side of, yeah, sure, the tech may be different and not what originally people thought we're going to use. But I, I think people will just, I think we forgot that people like using good products. And again, Jupiter is just a killer product. So I think that's why it sees the, the traction it does. I think one last interesting thing is that 
the founder of Jupiter said that basically uh, everyone knows that like 40% of the supply is going to be airdropped to Jupiter like users or like whoever is eligible for airdrop and that's going to be split into four phases right with the first one so for sort of like the Jupiter core product I wouldn't be too surprised to see the next one being for like Jupiter's per product but this is going to be a once a year event so Jupiter is going to release 10% of the supply in this like mega airdrop in January of every year. If you had asked me and I had like no context, I would have thought that that would happen like faster, maybe in like half of your cycles, but it's going to be three more years before like Jupiter's last like massive, like 10% airdrop. And I don't know how that will play into like the timing of various market cycles, but I just thought it was like an interesting strategy, but it also makes sense because Jupiter's founder, I don't know how to pronounce his name, like meow or meow, um, has said that like, you know, he's really focused on growing the product. He really doesn't care about like revenue share. And I wouldn't be too surprised to see him wanting to build out this like crazy brand and crazy ecosystem within the Jupiter platform. And so it makes sense to like, sort of like spend one year doing the sprint, building out this crazy product until you take like. 80, 90% of market share on Solana, do a huge airdrop for it, and then rinse and repeat, move on to like the next product until you basically dominate the entire like Solana DeFi ecosystem. You know, Perpdex is probably the next after that. I don't know, maybe like a borrowing lending platform to sort of destroy all of the other borrowing lending platforms on Solana. I don't know what the last one would be. Maybe something MEV related. Would you want to see that under the same token or new product, new token? I think that would be under the same token. It's kind of hard to do a new product, new token, but that could be a good segue into Unibot on Solana. Unless you guys have anything else for Jupiter? No, that's strictly why I was bringing it up. So Unibot, probably one of the front runners for the Telegram bot trading meta, right? They were the first to like, one of the first to have a token. That token went pretty high. Um, but obviously now it's down pretty bad on Ethereum. But I think starting from November last year, when meme coins really took off on Solana, you saw all of these Telegram trading bots pop up, right? Most notably Bonk bot, which was doing like incredible volumes, probably more so than like every other Ethereum Telegram trading bot combined. And so if you're an Ethereum-based Telegram trading bot, you're like, hey, I want in on this party. It's free money. I'm not going to miss out. Telegram trading bots are obviously here to stay. So Unibot did that. Unibot launched a new product on Solana, but they recently announced that they are going to release a new token called Unisoul. So how this token works is that Unibot holders receive 80% of Unisoul supply and 50% of revenue from Solana trades will go to Unibot holders and the other 50% will go to Unisoul holders. Uh, so traders will receive roughly 20% of the Unisoul airdrop but it's important to note that the Unibot ecosystem fund and LP supply, which is roughly 10% of the Unibot supply, is not eligible for the airdrops. But TLDR, like if you're a Unibot holder, you're not getting diluted that much in terms of sort of like the amount of units so you get. It's not like you're getting completely hosed on this new product that's launching on Solana. You would still make a hefty amount of free revenue. However, it's only 50% of the revenue from Solana trades, right? That's going to uni bot holders. And then the other is going to uni soul holders. And at that point, you can ask, like, you know, this is getting kind of confusing. Like, if Unibot launches on another, like, 
blockchain? Is it going to launch another token? And there's a whole host of arguments for why you should launch a new token, why you shouldn't launch a new token. Obviously, a new token is probably a new chart. It's more money. I think there's arguments to be made against it. Velodome and Aerodome paid up pretty bad when they tried to do their whole like new token, old token strategy. And Velodrome, sorry, Aerodrome ultimately cannibalized Velodrome pretty heavily. I'm not sure you see that same dynamic play out given that I would guess users between Ethereum and Solana are pretty isolated between the two ecosystems, but I would love to get your thoughts on like, what do you think a new token for in the same product on a new chain is a good idea or not? They did put out an announcement real quick and, and they said that they're not doing another token. I don't know if that was due to community pushback or that was always the plan. I have no idea, but they did, they did say that. I think it's important here because... I'm pretty against the idea of like one product, one token, because I, I definitely get the, like, I think the market structure incentives right now today, you should launch as many tokens as possible because nothing cha- trades remotely near any form of a fundamental value. And that will lead to more cal- uh, value capture for you as the deployer. Now, is that like um, morally the higher, the, re- the best road to take, or is that like the best thing to do for the future of the industry? Like, probably no to both um but from a pure incentives point yeah yeah you should launch as many tokens as possible like that's the market will buy them and you will make money that seems to be the meta um for me it's like what are the analogies that you can make here to some sort of like real like physical world businesses right like think about like Amazon started as selling books right and I don't know the the true history of Amazon but let's just pretend this is true like let's say the next thing Amazon launched is their web services or AWS. They used the revenue and profits from the bookstore sales and the online sales to, to the R and D to build an AW, the AWS business, right? Like those things are very interconnected. And imagine if they, instead of like keeping the bookstore and online business only under the initial Amazon equity, and then they launched an AWS equity, right? They built a whole new entity with a whole new company and put that public. Like, does that make sense? No, that does not make sense. They're, they're the same company managed by the same person. There's one, they're one company. They're just two products within an, the same umbrella. Um, and I think you could probably make an argument where, yeah, but you, as an investor, you know, if I only believed in the AWS business, now I could bet on that and I don't have to have, take exposure to their online marketplace. I, I kind of sympathize with that, but at the same time, like they're, they're just not that separate in reality. The, the, the profits of one fund the creation of the other and vice versa, or when online sales are down and AWS is high, you end up with like a, a break even revenue, right? Like uh, these are the examples I can think of that create some sort of analogy here. And I just think it's, it doesn't make sense. And then we chatted about this earlier in the day and, you know, I think it was Sam, you mentioned it would make a lot of sense if they were, uh, like basically if the revenue share made sense because it's two different chains and you have to like the, the cross chain communication and value transfer between Solana and Ethereum isn't that great today. So maybe it just makes sense. And they're reducing the complexity in the system by all of the value that gets created on Solana goes to the Solana token, but that's not true, right? 50% is still going back to the Unibot token. And so you're still have like you're just introducing more complexity, so that I, I I don't think that that was really the solution here. And I'm trying to like rack my brain for reasons you would do this, uh, other than you know the incentives to launch a token lead to more money. And like I'm struggling, I really am. Like it doesn't it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. I think 
as far as the fee distribution complexity point, at first I was like, okay, yeah, that's going to be pretty complicated. But how Unibot is doing this is that everyone that holds Unibot on Ethereum, I think gets a chance to fill in the form and you basically give them your Solana address, right? So if everyone does that, then it seems like you could probably do that for like a fee distribution from Solana to you don't need like this whole new token that accrues value. But yeah, I think you made a great point that the way the market is designed today and the participants that are in the market, it makes sense to launch a new token for this new chain for the similar product, just because like if Solana goes like Uniswap will definitely go up independent of Unibot. Yeah. I think this is also a part of the problem here is like revenue share for a startup doesn't make a ton of sense. And now they're trying to like force that into this scenario when you should probably just be taking the profits for the team and building more products and better products and, you know, improving your web app and expanding beyond just a telegram trading bot and, and offering more products and services and being live on more chains. Like that would make way more sense than trying to like launch a second token, build this rev share mechanism that makes sense. Like, I don't know. Uh, to me, it just feels like undue complexity. Back to your more TradFi analogies, Dan, there is Brookfield Corporation, if you've heard of them. I think they're a big Canadian company and they have like Brookfield Asset Management, Brookfield Infrastructure, Brookfield like, like Energy, like all of these different entities that trade as independent tickers on stock exchanges. So that's like kind of a counterpoint to that. But at the same time, like to your point, like returning revenue in a startup, like what what are we doing here? Like this is like a, a company that was probably, you know, founded in in the 1900s if if i'm being honest and this is unibot which just popped up in months ago months ago (laughs) yeah so i i don't know i don't get it either i guess just like camaraderie and having a a chain or a token on each chain so that way you can build independent communities because that is the tribalism in crypto like i understand that but it does feel a little bit precarious i suppose i think there's one more pretty valid point that Unibot wasn't exactly shy from talking about. It says specifically for Solana, the low total supply for Unibot creates unit bias, which is untenable for driving more attention. Unibot, I haven't looked at the chart, but I'm guessing it's at fifty dollars today. That's disgusting. First of all, what are we what are we doing here? It's in comparison to you know like with Bonk, which are zero point zero 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 something. I mean, you can't really blame them. It's it's the industry participants that have enabled this behavior. And I mean, they say that like 84, 84% of users that use trading bots are trading on Solana and 80% of the total volume traded on Telegram bots is on Solana. Given that sort of unprecedented opportunity, I think it makes sense to give it everything you have rather than try to deal with like an old token that has like old tokenomics, like baggage to deal with. But I do think that there are, are questions that people will ask, for example, Unibot X, their sort of centralized exchange interface rather than like a telegram interface, if that has significant revenue and like fee accrual, right? Who does that go to? Do you split it like pro rata between like the amount of like soul tokens being uh swapped on Unibot X or do you split it like just half half? Like it's it's a hard question to deal with. I can add on to that too while you're forking that, Dan. Like I used Alfred, which is uh, Steph- Steph- Stefan's, Jesus, uh, from Flashbots, like Telegram slash, slash AI agent project. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to try this out. I'm pretty bullish on that guy. He builds good shit. Um, 
terrible experience on Ethereum mainnet. I mean, you're paying it's solely because of the gas fees, but in my opinion, Telegram bots make so much more sense on Solana for so Unibot to um, come into Solana and to actually like dominate market share over there and see it dwarf its Ethereum vol- volumes does not surprise me in any way. Completely agree. I think it was a very good business move um, that they went to Solana. They're like that is where the volume is happening. Look at this chart. When there was in back in uh, the the beginning of November, you know there was about twenty million dollars of trading bot volume happening, all of which was on Ethereum. We fast forward to you know the last few days, we're seeing you know closer above sixty million, sixty five million, uh, and fifty six million of that was on Solana. So there's been a clear shift in where this activity is happening. Uh, now the interesting thing is when you break this down by the actual trading bots themselves the majority of volume is happening of course on solana but then even more so on bonk bot uh, the bonk bot is this gray bar on this chart uh, if you're if you're watching they did about 38 million uh, in they do about 38 million of revenue whereas bonk bot which is the ethereum version i believe i actually don't know if this chart doesn't look like it uh, breaks out the solana volume for bonk bot uh, but nonetheless, Bonkbot did 7.7 million versus the 38 of Bonkbot did 38 versus the 7.7 million of Unibot. Apologies there. And the users themselves are the same story, right? Again, Bonkbot in the 20,000 or 20 to 30,000 range of, of active users. And that's of the about 50,000 total active users for all bots. Nobody's anywhere on their playing field, which is very, very interesting. Um, now, I want to quickly, this is made by Whale Hunter. He's an absolute beast when it comes to the bot, uh, the bot market and, and all of the trading bots. But I'm curious if they broke out Unisol. Unisol's, the Soul uh, bot is still so new. I don't know if that's happened yet. Um, but look at that. Here's a great chart. So this is Unibot's volume. The orange here is Solana. The blue is uh, Ethereum. That is crazy. And like, you know, you're looking at between four to six million-ish of daily Solana volume versus one to two million of Ethereum volume. Like, of course, this was a good business decision. Um, but again, taking this back to the original point of should that be under one token or two is, is, is it's one is the answer, in my opinion. I have a super quick idea for anybody that's building a Telegram trading bot. Basically build, most probably have limit order systems, but then build out like something coincidence of wants, kind of like Kalsov, and then turn on a feesage for that. Just look at Kalsov, they're exploring four different feesage models. You can probably copy one of them and it'll work for you and you'll probably print. <laughs> if only we could code, man, we, we, we would have made it by now. What's up everyone, March is approaching fast and I wanna give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming, it's right around the corner and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're gonna be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors 
on things like strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stablecoins, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from an institutional front to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monumental event. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London. But uh, I, I will zoom through these last couple of hot seat cool thrones. I've got um, Polygon on the cool throne today. They just released a blog post last week on the aggregation layer, basically a thesis saying that, you know, user mindshare liquidity activity is super fragmented amongst Ethereum L2s and that there needs to be a solution for that. The aggregation layer or the ag layer, as they're calling it, is a decentralized protocol that does two things. It aggregates ZK proofs from all connected chains and it ensures safety for near instant atomic cross-chain transactions. So if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is kind of just different lingo for something else that every other L2 ecosystem is working on. But the difference here, in my opinion, is that V1 for Polygon is actually launching next month in February. So within 30 days, and V1 will feature a unified bridge contract and a common proof aggregator for uh, chains that opt in. And V2 is expected later this year, and it's supposed to support async cross-chain comms. So expect that sometime uh, within 2024. I just kind of like Matic right now because everyone seems to absolutely hate it. If you look at that one year chart, it's pretty much the only token that started higher and ended lower. So, I mean, that just naturally makes me a little bit more curious. It's been down only against basically every other major in the top 15, having slipped from, you know, at one point being number seven all the way down to 14 by circulating market cap. So I find just through my own personal bias, and maybe this is, you know, uh, not true, but I've talked with a lot of different people in the industry and I always ask them, you know, what do you think about the different ZK teams working in the space? And Polygon's team is always on that list when I'm talking to developers. So I think that speaks, you know, volumes. And uh, I think that Polygon has gotten a little bit too much hate over the last six to 12 months. So I, I kind of think uh, Maddox's going to have a little comeback run here in 2024. The aggregation layer stuff is very, very cool. I definitely agree that, um, you know, this is not, they're not the only person building towards this vision. This has kind of been the end game, but the key, as you rightly called out, is the the timing, right? Uh, I think ZK Sync is building a very, very similar thing, right? And it's going to be interesting to see how the competition between the two plays out because, Yes, competition is very important and it ultimately creates better products, more secure systems, and that is crucial. But if you look at it strictly from the point of view of Ethereum as the base layer, if everybody is on the same proof system, life will be so much easier. And you know, Sam and I were lucky enough to watch um, Alex from ZK Sync and Jordy from uh, Polygon have a whiteboard session where they discussed the logistics of this uh, when we were at ETH Paris. And the, I mean, basically the, it breaks down into, you need to have the same shared bridge contract uh, and then the same proving circuits. And like, you can blindly trust the other chains in the aggregation layer and they're all get proved together. Uh, you get richer bridging, if you will, where 
Uh, you do still async bridging, but uh, as soon as a proof is posted, you can you know trust that the data on the other chain is true uh, and valid, and then you can swap assets between chains again because you're using the same shared bridge contract, so the assets are already in the same contract on the L1. Uh, it gets very very interesting at what you can do, and uh, part of me does wish that all of the this would coalesce around one system from the start, but. The reality is it's not going to, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because you get all of this like induced friction where if the, like the two most popular rollups are on different aggregation systems, right? So if one's on ZK sync as a hyperchain and the other one's built on the polygon CDK, you, you won't get the benefits of communicating between the two. And so I'm a little bit torn on how this plays out, to be honest. And it's just kind of like the pains of the modular growth system is that, you know, Yes, you have these things that will work and really reduce friction, but there's like constellations. And if you're in different constellations, the communication between the two will be very challenging. I very much agree with all that, Dan. I, I still just can't wrap my head around technically the trade-offs you're going to get between, let's say, an L2 that's using the same proof system as Polygon, but an alternative DA layer, uh, you know, because this is ultimately for like the modular world, the aggregation in the modular world. So clearly Polygon is thinking about that. And it sounds like they think they have good ideas around solving some of those, I guess, security sacrifices that you make. But at a technical level, I still just don't truly understand how this is going to work in practice. I think there's also a lot of unanswered questions i mean sure it's really cool you get like asynchronous atomic composability but you know there's questions of like execution latency. i don't think it's atomic though i think it's just async i think for polygons aggregation there it's atomic really that's interesting yeah okay. but not synchronous atomic and inclusion i don't know about the execution. Night, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah i think there's like a bunch of questions between like proving costs, latency, like I think maybe for like transactions that want to be like executed or included like minutes within each other, within like one sort of like roll of stack, that's fine. But I think like there's this future in which like researchers nerd out on is like everything's like HFT in like milliseconds. I can like swap on this chain and post that as collateral on chain B and then do something with that on like chain c and that's all of like synchronous and atomic whatever like other buzzwords there are i think even though i don't think like we need that future we're still really far from that future all right round us out dan who you got yeah for sure for sure um i'm actually putting sui in sui in the in the uh the cool throne this week i think they've seen some very interesting growth in those, you know, again, those top line fancy metrics that people like to talk about, right? TVL is up 4x over the last three months in dollar terms. That's the most growth on a percentage basis of any chain over the last six months. Um, in SWE terms, the uh, so kind of removing the price growth out of this, it's up about 2x. Currently, it's at about $400 million of TVL. And interestingly, this is right about where Solana was before it started its run up from $30 to, I think it's trading around 100 today. Um, Solana was at a $18 billion market cap at this point with a four, again, with a $400 million TVL Swiss at about one and a half billion. Uh, it's kind of an interesting comparison there. There's a lot more that goes into that comparison than just TVL, but, um, Dex volume is also up about seven X over the last three months. Again, this is the most growth of all chains on a percentage basis over the last six months. 
Uh, Cetus is the main dex on Sui, and its token up is up about 100, 100% over the last three months, but only sitting around a $9, $10 million market cap uh, with an FDV about $100 million. So to me, Solana kind of proved with it, its price action, ironically, proved that the high throughput L1 narrative is here to stay and their attention will not leave that narrative for the rest of this cycle. Um, the Jito airdrop proved that, you know, these smaller chains can have very interesting wealth effects with uh, some of their airdrops when they're protocols that do, you know, meaningful work for the chain. Uh, so Aftermath is another liquid staking provider on SWE. There's rumors to be, you know, they're kind of going to be doing this a very similar thing with their airdrop uh, to their early users. Uh, so there's getting some early attention around that as well. Um, there is one interesting catalyst, which I think there's probably debate around whether this is bullish or bearish in terms of token price, uh, token unlocks. SWE has an unlock coming of about 75% of the an increase of about 75% um, of the circulating supply in April. And these unlocks are from the series A and series B investor allocation. So some people look at that and be like, oh, there's token unlocks coming. They're dumping. I'm not going to be interested in that. I think the, the more like malicious view or pessimistic view is there's token unlocks coming from original locked up investors. They've never had a better time now than to start talking about the chain to gain attraction uh, before these unlocks hit. I think that's a sad reality of parts of this industry. And I'm not saying that's SWE specific. I'm saying that's like investor mindset is you, their job is to invest and sell tokens. Like that's literally their job. Uh, of course they want to make money. Um, and then overall, like why I find SWE interesting. I, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole ever since Boccaccio put, uh, SWE into our 2024 thesis report. And it is the idea of the Gen 3 chains kind of coming to life and fixing all of the pain points uh, that we've experienced over the last 10 years in, in crypto conceptually makes a lot of sense. Practically, there's a lot of hurdles to, to implementing that. Uh, but you know, it's it's implemented Narwhal and Bullshark into its consensus mechanism, which is the top top of the you know, crime deli crime of consensus mechanism design right now. Um, it's got object oriented smart contracting language with Move, and the entire chain is built to be object oriented, unlike some of the other Move chains. And that should greatly the idea is that it will greatly improve the developer experience. I know the Soul Lend team, a lending protocol on Solana. Uh, is building their implementation for SWE. I don't know if that's launched yet, but one of their developers was tweeting about how the the like the the UX of actually developing this application on SWE was just such an improvement from that of Solana that he was just fired up. And you know that's kind of proof that uh, some of these optimizations they made at the VM level and the the actual language uh, has really made everybody's life a lot easier. Now, what I find to be some of the more interesting things. Uh, at the on the chain tech level is we are desperate for things that make onboarding new users easier and they enshrine those into the core protocol with zk login uh, which basically allows i don't i haven't fully grasped the technical aspects of this yet uh, so apologies here i'm still kind of doing my research and talking in real time but what effectively what it does is and enables you to control a wallet with your gmail account so obviously there's security concerns there, right? That's like much different than owning your own keys uh, and you know having your own wallet and self-custing your assets and 
you know, if someone hacks your Gmail and it, using ZK login, like they can probably move around your funds. Um, so maybe it's less in interesting for deep rooted financial applications, but things like social media and gaming, having somebody need to set up a web browser wallet is a barrier to entry that I think we really, really underweight in this industry. Like, it'd be an embarrassing process for me to go to one of my normie friends and be like, oh yeah, come use this new social media site. Like you just have to set up this web browser wallet and stuff like it's, it's just not going to happen. It's actually not going to happen. Uh, and something like ZK login where you don't even know that your email address is attached to this hex encoded, uh, you know, blockchain address. That is a beautiful unlock that I, I can't believe I haven't seen more of this being discussed because that will change the onboarding experience and that will bring more people on chain, assuming that meaningful applications get built on suite. Uh, another thing there is they have native account abstraction basically, right? So they have this, this concept of sponsored transactions where uh, the user can send a transaction and anybody else can pay the gas for it. Uh, when that transaction hits a smart contract, like the, the smart contract isn't even aware that someone else is paying the gas. Beautiful design. This is literally what Ethereum and the whole ETH and L2 community is trying to build with account abstraction and has thus far gotten no traction on it. It's still complicated. It's clunky. It's being added on after the fact. Like this is what Gen 3 blockchains are supposed to solve. And they're like, this is a great example of it actually happening and being implemented and working. Uh, and then lastly here, the thing I want to call out is their transaction blocks versus traditional transactions in the Ethereum world. So basically they allow composable transactions where you can have uh, like different pieces of your transaction. So think like piece one uh, is approve contract and then piece two is transfer assets and or make a swap, right? Like that's a painful two-step process when you're using Ethereum mainnet or any L2 and you have to go to Uniswap to make a trade. Like first you approve the tokens and then you make the swap. EIP, I think it's 3074, um, is working to fix this where you can like make EOAs great again and they can actually like batch these transactions together. Doesn't exist today. Gen 3 blockchain has this on day one. Um, and with all the recent exploits we've seen across crypto, uh, another interesting thing here is revoking contract addresses sucks. If anyone has ever done that, it's just a painful process. Like, yes, there's great ways to see the available contracts that you uh, have a approvals out to, but it's you have to go one by one and like revoke them all down the list. And it sucks, especially with a wall that has a ton of history. And a good example of why transaction blocks would be interesting is like you could batch all of those together in one transaction and the user sees one thing, revokes all access. Like it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And the one thing that they're missing, and we'd hit on this earlier, is just the rich history you get with being a longer tenured chain when you get that strong developer community that is passionate about putting pushing your product forward uh, because it benefits them. Again, I think Solana has absolutely crushed at this recently. You've seen it come into fruition with multiple teams building multiple things on the core, core protocol level. Um, and that's just something you get with age. Like you, you just need to keep grinding without that. And, and being, I think Missing Labs is a pretty strong team and they're the ones behind this pushing it forward today. But that's a good measure of success is like, what does that look like six months from now, three months from now, a year from now? Yeah, I think the the right curve take here is like, okay, well, there's only so many developers in crypto who's actually building on SWE. Um, but I mean, if you just zoom out, like there is definitely someone, especially in lieu of the US ETF spot Bitcoin approval, like there's a new person, probably dozens of people following down the crypto rabbit hole every single day. And for me personally, it took me probably six to 12 months before I fell further down the risk curve after fully understanding Bitcoin. So 
I get that this cycle already played out with alt L1s last last, you know, two, three years ago and people today are probably thinking, nah, like that that definitely can't happen again. We already saw that. It it really doesn't work super, super well. Like we don't have room for another generation of new chains. But I do think that people are gonna come across these things and they're gonna try them and whatever provides the best user experience, like you're gonna be surprised at what can actually gain traction in a in a raging bull market. So I agree. I think Sweezy could call out. I'm personally on the chain, you know, playing around with aftermath as well. So, um, you know, bag bias aside, it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good experience. Pretty easy. Felt a lot like Solana. Yeah, I do think that new shiny chain effect will always be there. And then you mentioned like a lot of like technological improvements. And I think it's definitely like debatable from like a core blockchain architecture. Like what is the better tech? What's the better VM? What's the better like consensus mechanism? And there definitely are like sort of objective features such as like the ZK login, which are really a strong benefit to the user experience. But I think crypto has also shown that like better tech doesn't always win. There's a lot of other factors to consider, right? There's like liquidity, there's network effects, there's playing the BD game, whether you're doing that correctly. There's how much of a developer ecosystem can you build and developer support? And like it's it's just a lot of factors to consider and whether you want like exposure to a chain XC or not. That's like the very mid curve take. <laughs> the the I, hold on. I wanna I wanna respond to that because the, I briefly mentioned Narwhal and Bullshark as like you know the latest and greatest in consensus design. But the other things I mentioned it was intentionally not to do with like you know they have a cool consensus consensus fast path that no other chain has today. Um but I, I only mention things on the UX improvement specifically yeah. because this just makes it easier to use the chain. Uh, and that stuff I find just so damn interesting. Like if you were a builder and you didn't care about what you were building on, you just wanted something that was like the easiest platform for a user to engage with the product you're building. Like I don't, even just the one thing with ZK login, like that is, that isn't, that feels like a, such a major unlock to me. Like once I, I, again, I still want to dive into the technical side to like figure out like, okay, like, you know, am I just putting my email on the blockchain? Like, that's probably not great. I, I wouldn't like that. I think the answer there is no. And that's the whole ZK piece. Um, but again, like if it's as good as it sounds on paper, like shit, dude, like, ah, who it's hard to be bet against that for me. I think on the Ethereum ecosystem, if you had the ability to like approve and swap and revoke all in one transaction, Ethereum users would have probably saved, I don't know, easily 50 million, 100 million in the past like four years on hacks, right? I feel like that in and of itself is like a pretty big unlock. And obviously like move-based uh, programming languages with like smart contracts have a whole other like health of benefits, including not being vulnerable to re-entrancy attacks. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just a natural progression though. Like, you know, even on Solana, like that's the same story, like, uh, they they improved on that as well. Um, and I've never, like, I'm not a smart contract developer, right? So when someone says we built a language around like being object oriented, since that's ultimately what you're doing in trading assets, like that only makes so much sense to my mind. Like I get it. Like if you, ERC20 is like, you don't have actual tokens in your wallet. You just have uh, an entry on a ledger that says, you know, Sam owns 10 USDC uh, versus the object model. You actually do like are you holding the assets, they're tradable, they're movable. Um, so conceptually, I like that kind of makes sense. Uh, but net net, I think the takeaway there is like it's purpose built for smart contracts and blockchains and making developers lives easier. 
Uh, and then we do have a sample size of one with the soul end guys being like, no, this was good. Like the, the UX was great. I loved building on Sui. Nevertheless, worth, worth bridging over and, uh, trying it out. Right. I mean, if you don't try yeah, it, experiment, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with that, but all right, well, this has been a lot longer than it honestly normally is, which I'm surprised because it's only three of us. We weren't able to raggle a, another, uh, Blockworks research analyst on. So we'll be sure to bring back next week with four, but, uh, Dan, Ren, talk to you guys next week. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, everyone. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching today's ZeroX Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.